This week's episode of Core Lords is brought to you by the Better Beer Zero Alcohol Option. Uh, I'll tell you, one of the best things that's happened to me in the past 18 months is the proliferation of all of these uh, non-alcoholic beers. Like, I love beer. I love the taste of it. I love the refreshingness of it. The fizz. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I realized after drinking all these, uh, you know, this one is, I think, 0.5% uh, alcohol. I've realized that I actually am not that attached to the alcohol. It's more just the, the flavor and the refreshing zing of it. So, uh, I mean, this is a ripper. Like, what an epic opportunity to be involved with. Uh, you can pick them up at Dan Murphy's or BWS. And sick, man. And as an aside, like, fire out, better beer. They're backed by the lads from Inspired Unemployed, which means that we're right now sandwiched between two of the greatest comic blue-collar geniuses of our time, uh, that being the Inspired Unemployed lads, and uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the Batuta Advocate lads who uh, look after our other advertising and and sponsorship deals. So uh, what a great place to be in. Support blue-collar comedy. Get some zero-alcohol better beer, beers India, or any kind of better beer, beers India. But uh, yeah, frothing on the partnership and the zero-alcohol option. Well played. This episode is also brought to you by the inaugural Swellness Pilgrimage. That's right, cunts. We're going to India. Get that, India. Hot on the heels of our super successful inaugural Swellness Summit, we've uh, thought that we just want to keep the momentum going, keep the healing going, keep the energy going, keep the spirits up, and uh, yeah, just all come together again on a once-in-a-lifetime trip to the Indian Himalayas. We'll be doing some trekking through the foothills. Uh, we'll be landing in Dharamshala, the home of the Dalai Lama, and visiting a few of the uh, Tibetan refugee monasteries. Hopefully, we'll even get a, a, a bit of an audience with the Dalai. Each day, we'll begin with Wim Hof and meditation and yoga, and we'll be doing some ice baths in freezing cold waterfalls and streams. There's going to be jam nights, cacao ceremonies. Uh, we'll be visiting the Manali village, home of the world-famous Manali hash, of course. Eat, pray, cone. Eat, pray, cone. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the itinerary is extensive and completely mind-blowing. The trip will be going down from the 22nd of May until the 6th of June. For more information, flick us an email at uptheswellians at gmail.com. There is also an opportunity to tack a surf trip on to the end of this trip to the Andamans. Uh, There's fun waves in India to Indo for those Australians flying through Singapore on the way home. You've got Sri Lanka to the south, uh, of course, all of which are in season. We'll have board storage waiting for you at the airport in India. There's only 10 spots available on this inaugural trip. You'll be joining your boy, the two-time Gold Cone Peace Award-winning surf journalist, Scum Valley's finest himself, Simi B. And, uh, yeah, who knows whether we'll do another one. But uh, hopefully there will be many more. Don't miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Eat, pray, cone. For today's episode, we're joined by surfing funny man and Floridian surf royalty, Sterling Spencer, although it is for a more sober discussion, uh, charting an issue that really goes to the heart 
and more importantly, the thoroughly flogged noggins of both of us. That is, of course, head injuries. Uh, we're both veterans of a couple and have felt the pinch big time of the sleeping giant in the action sports and combat sports realm. This is all ahead of Sterling's uh, feature film called Are You Serious? which is set to premiere on Stab Premium on March 2nd, made by Stab. In fact, another killer bit of content that's come out of the Stab production team of late. They're on one. Holy smokes. Uh, but of course, it wouldn't be an episode of Call Lords if we didn't go deep into Sterling's incredible surfing story and journey. So easy to forget how much of a hi-fi ripper he was in his prime. Holy smokes. Aerial wizard, rail shaman, ultra stylish, super speed, tube freak. Uh, he kind of had it all. He was a super well-rounded surfer. We'll get into a lot of that. His years uh, on the Billabong team with AI, Parco, and Taj, and much, much more. Enjoy. What's up? Fuck yeah. Holy smokes. Good to hear How voice, you doing, bro. bro. Yeah, I'm good. What you been up to? Mate, like most days, I started with uh, a few rounds of Wim Hof breath work while looking into the emerging sunlight and the many photons that come out of it and uh, reset my circadian rhythms so I can have a uninterrupted <laughs> sleep at night. And then uh, I do some Wim Hof push-ups, got into my ice bath, ran around naked in the backyard, uh, took my dog for a walk. Had a black coffee, doing some intermittent fasting. Did 20 minutes of meditation. Uh, have not microdosed yet, but I will. All of which is <laughs> a ways to manage uh, 12 to 15 concussions, and uh, you know, four of which or three of which can't remember. I was knocked out cold, which is actually, uh, yeah, why we're having a yarn today. In fact, isn't it? Talking brain injuries. Oh, yeah. They're so fun. Super fun. Super fun. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I guess we'll get into yeah, that. Yeah, you're, you're on it. Yeah, kind of got to be. Hey, because uh, if you're not, you just get overwhelmed by compulsive thoughts of self-harm yeah. and harming others and uh, all stuff that <laughs> you've experienced. So, <laughs> and I believe... I kind of have a similar routine. Yeah, mate, tell us about your routine. Um, well, I used before my injury, I, I used to do Wim Hof, but ever since my injury, my injury really messed my nervous system up, and I can't handle, I can't handle like really intense stuff like that. So I kind of had a my routine now is more of a, I do like yoga nidra where you like, have you heard of that? Yeah. I do a version of that during the day, uh, non-sleep deep rest, which is, I guess the yeah, scientific yeah, yeah. equivalent of uh, yeah, yoga yeah. nidra. Yeah, I do that. And then I'll do like some qigong and, uh, some yoga and some chanting just to kind of get my brain relaxed. And then uh, I usually surf after that. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I uh, I do very similar things. Um, 
yoga nidra slash non-sleep deep rest. Definitely do yoga. Definitely do qigong. Uh, a lot of which I got yeah. from that book, uh, the Concussion Repair Manual by Dr. Dan Engel. Have you read that? No, I heard of it. Yeah, it's really good. It. Yeah, it's that's something like people need to be handed the second they get a TBI. Seriously, man, it's um just so straight to the point. It's like almost like a, a book in the form of a listicle, you know what I mean? Like a, a list article yeah. where it's just headers and uh, so succinct. It's like, uh, here's the, the healing modality. Here's how much it costs. Here's the science backing it up. And uh, helpful to yeah. read on your Kindle, actually, because you can kind of highlight it all and export the notes. Um, and oh, that's cool. Yeah, super helpful, man. But um, I guess, you know, I got you on the phone because I wanted to chat about this film uh, that Stab's made that's coming out. But before we uh, get into all that and before we do the full deep dive into head injuries, uh, man, I just wanted to reflect a bit on who you are and your your life and career and stuff like that, man. And um, (laughs) starting back there in Pensacola, like, tell us a bit about your hometown, um, I, I guess for a lot of our Australian listeners, Florida is largely an unknown. It's not somewhere where uh, you're really going to go on a surf trip, is it, if you're chasing yeah. quality waves? Um, so what's Pensacola <laughs> like? Is it is it rich or poor or in between? Um, it's in between. And uh, where I live is a lot like Australia. Um, there's just no waves. <laughs> 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 it's like Australia without waves because I live in the Gulf of Mexico. I live in the Gulf of Mexico, which is one of the smallest bodies of water that's not a lake. So, <clears throat> yeah, Pensacola is very beautiful. White sands, blue water. Feels like the Gold Coast. It's just uh, there's just not much waves. <laughs> And I live really close to Alabama, so I see some interesting people regularly. Yeah. The way I understand those parts of Florida, it's pretty blue-collar, right? Like, that's kind of the equivalent we of Australia is that you've got a lot of working-class white and black people, I guess. Uh, and that's, uh, yeah, I mean, this country's generally like pretty blue collar like it's um most people work in the trades um work in kind of essential services which is kind of different to america in a sense like there's parts of america where uh, there's a lot of rich white people by the coast and that kind of blue collar aspect has been lost from coastal culture right yeah it's starting to become that way like uh start all the rich people Starting to buy up all the beachfront. Mm, worrying times. And, man, tell us a, a bit about your dad, too. I understand he was a full-blown core lord from the zone. <laughs> he was a core lord. He was a – he won the very first professional surfing contest on the East Coast of America – in 1972, I believe. And he, he rode for Greg Knoll, had a, his own Greg Knoll, 
uh, surfboard model. And yeah, he, he was kind of the first from the Gulf Coast to be a professional surfer um, in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he started a surf shop, Interlight Surf Shop, in 1969. And he kind of just had a surf shop and surfed his whole life. <laughs> Man, that's so classy. It's like the epitome of those original surf yeah. culture, counterculture guys. And man, what what are your memories of that period? Did you ever have any interactions with Dubul, Greg Knoll? Yeah, I spent some time with him. Um, they used to have these uh, meetings because my dad was in the Greg Knoll Hall of Fame. So when I was a kid, I used to go over to Cocoa Beach and they'd have these like hall of fame hangouts and it was cool. Like, uh, I remember hanging out with like Jerry Lopez and just like kind of all the hall of famers at the time. So I got to see a lot of original surf history. Wow. That's so crazy, man. That's surreal to be a child uh, in the yeah surrounds of icons like that. I mean, yeah, not many, not many kids get the opportunity to do that. It kind of makes you some form of surf royalty, a blue blood, even. <laughs> yeah, I remember like hanging out with Nat Young and Sean Thompson and Rabbit. Oh, when I was a kid. But I didn't know how famous they were yet, you know, like, um, Sean Thompson was kind of like an uncle to us. So he just, I didn't realize he was like, cause Sean Thompson and my dad started instinct together. And so they would like drive around the country selling clothes and stuff. So yeah, I just have I have a ton of memories of just the old legends. Fuck, that's insane. I love how DIY <laughs> surf culture was back then in the surf industry. It was like, you know, Gordon Merchant. Yeah. You probably know, obviously, you were sponsored by Billabong, but just the origins of companies like that, you know, it was like yeah, making your own board shorts and, you know, stack them in the back mm. of a panel van and just running hot laps of the East Coast of Australia or america and yeah. uh just flogging them off out the back <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it was it was i started serving in the late 80s so early 90s is kind of like my early my earliest memories and uh yeah the culture was insane it was it was pure it was true core we had us we had my dad had like a little surf shop and I remember just like going in and it was just like the most magical place on earth because <laughs> it was all just all the best surfboards from around the country. Like my dad was best friends with Skip Fry and Hank Warner. So we always had like a ton of those and Rusties and Merricks and all when it was like in their prime, you know? Yeah. 
surf shops around about that time, like I'm the exact same age as you, I think. And um, man, like you'd go into a surf shop and surfing was just so small back then. It was this like little speck, uh, this little pixel yeah. of culture. <laughs> and you'd go into the surf stores and there was all these like, you know, trippy now defunct brands with small run, like artisanal made clothing. Um, yeah. And it was like, everything was like, you know, I I reckon the Red Hot uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers Point Break did a really great job of depicting the the kind of style oh, yeah. and culture at the time. Like it's such a good period piece. For a few sure. question marks about the uh, surf scenes in it, but um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, like they nailed the fucking the culture and and what it looked like at that time and it was so exotic to a grown man being a little kid yeah. and the, just even the smell Same of surf thing. wax and all the weird speed oh, yeah. freak iconography <laughs> and the, the tripped out day glow mm. clothing and stickers like in the company stussy gotcha op um, uh, yeah. was, uh... Fuck, it was endless yeah. <laughs> it was special man a golden age I, uh... North Shore, I grew up watching North Shore, and that was, I was born the year it came out, so I always felt like I was, like, a child of that culture, the late 80s, it's like, all my earliest memories. Yeah, and I bet for a kid from the Gulf of Mexico, you know, Rick Kane, being from Arizona, it's probably a pretty relatable narrative. (laughs) Yeah, it was. That was kind of like what kind of like, yeah, that story. It I felt like the Rick Kane, you know, like everywhere I traveled, I tell them I'm from the Gulf of Mexico and they're like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> I always felt like embarrassed when I was younger to tell people where I was from. They're like, what the? I was like looked down upon. Yeah. It's interesting though, man, like for all the kind of short period waves and inconsistent bouts of swell that you guys get down there, your region has such a crazy strike rate for just producing the most technically gifted, stylish, like aerial wizards who are, you know, versatile across all conditions. And you're one of them, man. Like, I think that's uh, often forgotten amidst all the shenanigans and, and comedy is how fucking good yeah. you surfed. Like, you go back to the, the main video parts um, that you put together over the years and, like, just savage high-speed power gaffes and crazy punts that were, you know, pretty ahead of their time, I reckon. Like, real big, clean frontside grabs, like, big poppy air revs, rodeo clowns. Like, fuck the works, man. You had the, the, the a really well-rounded um surfing attack and just the speed and style you, you put it all together with was you know typically florida in my mind when i think of floridian surfing i think of yourself yeah. i think of the hobgoods i think of slater i think of the geiselmans um you know Corey lopez shay lopez like just all guys were just really easy on the eye really enjoyable to watch and just absolutely shredded the fuck out of waves from shin high to <laughs> quadruple overhead thank you dude yeah I feel like Floridians, like we've got the heart of the the heart of the tiger, you know, because we have to like prove ourselves. But yeah, like I'm always amazed, like how good all the Florida guys were at airs. 
like before wave pools and stuff. Totally. It's like, where did we learn that stuff? <laughs> Man, I can't leave out Aaron Cormican from that list. One of my uh, all-time early Dude. favorites, just the original oh, yeah. progressive punt wizard, core lord, redneck, beer swilling, bong smoking, core lord legend. <laughs> he was amazing. We had me and him were like arch nemesis back in the day because like we would do the pro there was like an air pro tour and i was like the young kid <laughs> and i like beat him every time and it like freaked him out and he like hated me <laughs> it's pretty natural you see that young promising yeah. fresh-faced talent coming up through the ranks and you just want to fucking smash his pretty privileged little face in we we had a we were serving Cocoa Beach, which is like has like the smallest, worst waves in the world. And me and him were in this final and it was an air show. And their waves were literally like shin high. Like you could barely catch them. And we were like sitting there and there's like thousands of people. And we couldn't stand up. We could barely stand up. We're having a hard time standing up. <laughs> So I, this one, this boat, this boat goes by no way. and the, and the wake matches up with this tiny wave and I catch it and he's like, fuck you. <laughs> and I catch it and I stand up and then this jet ski out of nowhere pulls in front of me and there's a little wake and I just bounced as hard as I could and double grabbed. And got my board like inverted, <laughs> going straight, and then landed, and the whole crowd was like, Wah! and that was the only wave of the contest, and I won like ten grand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all time. Fuck, that's good. And he was so mad. He didn't like shake my hand. He like just walked off. Like mm. that was bullshit. Did you um? But that was like. Did you celebrate the win like uh, Kanoa Igarashi did in front of Griffin Colapinto after winning the US Open? Just a full fucking hemorrhoid bursting scream. <laughs> I, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's one of the best. One of the all-time <laughs> bizarre, uh, you know, I want to say like spasms, orgasms of victory even. It was pretty weird. <laughs> I got to look that up. Man, um, you know, just for our listeners, like, you know, talk us through some of the, the the key video parts and films you were a part of in your heyday. Well, um, Billabong was definitely my biggest boost for that. Like, probably one of my earliest movies was Passion Pop with Wade. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting because you and you and Wade, like, you know, the sunny coast is like our equivalent of Florida, and it produces very yeah. similar surfers, like super stylish, super accurate and fast, and just powerful on rail, crazy in the pit, and uh, yeah, obviously just aerial wizards from Colborne to <laughs> Julian to Wade to Harry Bryant. Yeah, it's a long list of amazing surfers. Maybe that's why me and Wade always clicked because we were like the outcasts. Me and Wade were like an odd couple. It felt like 
because we did a lot of films together in the early years. But yeah, like most of my earliest movies, like with Billabong, like um, Frothing was a big one. Um, that was kind of like my first big part in a Billabong movie. And that kind of like launched my career. It kind of like put me on the map. Um, and yeah, I, became, I was good friends with Jordy. And Bill Bong's making him a movie. So I hopped on, like, I traveled with Jordy for six months. Wow. What was and, that like? Oh, man, it was hilarious. Like, it was so funny. Me, Jordy, and Wade traveled together for six months. What? And, and Jordy and Wade didn't get along. <laughs> they, like, couldn't stand each other. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was the, I was like the guy keeping them together. I was like, no guys, we can, we can do this. <laughs> Cause Jordy loved to listen to techno and Wade wanted to listen to metal, mm-hmm. but it was Jordy's movie. So we had to listen to techno in the car at all times. <laughs> <laughs> and it drove Wade crazy. Ugh. And Jordy was secretly the whole thing with him and Billabong was happening during that. And Jordy stopped putting his stickers on his boards. We're all like really confused. And like, Jordy's like, "Uh, I'm going to leave Billabong. And I'm like, dude, we're filming your movie for Billabong. (laughs) Like we've been going everywhere for six months. It was going to be called Laka Firecracker. No way. Yeah. And so by the end of the six months, I was in Durban. Jordy and Bill Bong and Jordy's dad, they got into this big fight. I think it's pretty well documented on Stab. And yeah, it ended and everyone just left. Everyone just disappeared. And I remember just like sitting there in Durban, like, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> and Bill Bong, Bill Bong, uh, they held the footage hostage. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let him have it or anyone see it. So I've never seen that footage six months of my life. What? <laughs> so there's like some of the best surfing ever probably from Jordy that's just never been seen and been thrown away. Man, that is, that's wild. <laughs> it was a crazy. Some crazy, crazy shit goes time. down like that in surfing. Like, there's film projects, and man, these film projects cost so much fucking bank to make. You know, bank that's been generated mm. by some, you know, often fucking seven-year-old in a Javanese sweatshop knitting wallets and board shorts together. <laughs> and it just gets pissed up the wall, man. I've seen it happen heaps of times. It's fucking wild. I, like, yeah, man. I mean, projects I was a part of, I remember um, going on a... A trip to uh, the Mints and the Tellos with Jack Robbo when he was 11, Ian Gentile, Connor Coffin, and uh, Kaio Abelli, actually. It was like this turbo Supergrom trip. And um, I guess we kind of a little bit skunked, like didn't really get the footage we wanted, but it was also around about that time of those like kind of blockbusters where everyone was obsessed with these fucked up one hitters. Like you had to basically do a double black backflip to 
get a, a fucking clip in a film. So like that was what the, where mm. the bar was at, you know, and I was kind of yeah. come from the generation where I just really enjoyed watching like surfers um, perform in all kinds of conditions. Uh, you know, you jack yeah. McCoy films, you go on a trip, you get what you get. And uh, that's the film. Right. So, I mean, yeah, the, the footage from, from that trip never saw the light of day either. And it was, you know, there was some crazy footage. <laughs> was, yeah, fuck man, it's trippy. It was like a, thousands of dollars that just got lit on fire. <laughs> yeah I am um, it's not that fun when it starts getting that intense like all about the tricks you know when it becomes too much about the tricks you lose like the the soul of the trip you know just the journey a hundred percent and I, I can't imagine how unpleasant it is Oh, for a surfer in that situation to constantly have that level of pressure on you as opposed to just surfing naturally and, and putting waves together how you want to do it. Like, yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I remember yeah. Dane actually on one of those modern collective trips that Geordie was on and, and he was off it, man. He was just so sick of having to perform to that level and, and try and constantly yeah. produce that kind of surfing. Yeah, it's intense. Um, I feel like that's why I started doing my own thing. Like, my last, like, big film was still filthy with, like, I got to travel with, like, Andy and Taj and Parco. And, yeah, the, the energy was intense, you know? Like, to get a part, it, it kind of, like, sucked the fun out of everything rather than us just like documenting the journey. What was it like uh, sharing space with those guys? It was a crazy period to be on Billabong. So flush with world tour talent and just, you know, really just some of the greatest talents of all time in, you know, Parco Taj and AI. Yeah. How how was it just being in those guys orbit at that time when they were huge, man? It was insane. I think I was 22. And when I like officially was in that movie, it was the most like surreal pro surfing time of my life. Cause it was like, <sighs> surf movies were still big and like Billabong movies were still like the best thing ever. So being around those guys, um, my personality definitely made it easy for them to want me to be around, especially Andy. I felt like he liked me the most because I like would make fun of Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Like he loved that shit. Um, when when I became Andy's favorite person, I had my first laptop. And he never seen a laptop before yet. Like stuff in Hawaii came like last because they're on an <laughs> island. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh I had this laptop and I was really good at photoshopping. <laughs> And Andy walks in. He's like, what are you doing, Grom? He's like, what? what is that? I'm like, what's what? He's like, what are you holding? 
like this is called a laptop he's like what what does it do i'm like this is a computer he's like what <laughs> and he like sits next to me and i have photoshop and i had kelly's head and i moved it to a seagull's body and like he his face it was like he saw like jesus walking on the water he was like what <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. So he, he's like, he's like, print this out. Like, how do we print this out? How do we, how do we, we got to print this out. So he printed a bunch and he was like throwing them everywhere. Like, he's like, ah, Kelly, we got them. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I love it. Like Slater's read the art of war and he's just like brain pretzeling <laughs> Andy with all these like thousand year old head fucking techniques and and he's just on this full like <laughs> analog internet trip just like oh look he photoshopped a seagull onto his bo- like body like oh, fucking let's just distribute these flyers that'll get him back mm, so then that's why andy was like we need sterling here we need him there like and i would like bring him picture like photoshop pictures and he's like yeah <laughs> and like at the end of the year in hawaii like it was always like I was there for like he won three years in a row and I was there for all of them and Quicksilver and Andy or uh, Quicksilver and Billabong they were like they were so competitive at the time so it was like my duty to like photoshop stuff like they're like all right Sterling we need you to blog this and it was like I was the cyber attack. <laughs> Whoa, you were the original Julian Assange of the surfing world, just freaking <laughs> taking down the yep. uh, yeah the elites. <laughs> it was such a fun era. Like Kelly and Andy were just going at it for those for that six years or whatever, and the energy was insane and billabong felt like a family at that time like we all we all rolled together hard you know yeah people become closer in times of war <laughs> i mean we're all like riding andy's coattails pretty much like for that 5 years or whatever mm man and talk us through like what were those world title parties like? Like, what are your memories of those nights? That must have been insane. To... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember seeing Aki a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, Do you know... I used to just lo- love watching Aki. Just, I could just watch him live. He's just such a beautiful person like <laughs> he's so funny he's so good i feel like every time uh i've been around Oki late at night there's always this like funny smell around i don't know it's like the same smell i used to <laughs> smell my mum and her friends would go out the back for cups of tea when i was a kid it's like yeah, it's always lingering in the air uh, a natural myst- <laughs> a natural mystic even i don't know i think that's what they call it, isn't it <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> the party the parties were hilarious like I felt like, I'm like, I can't believe I'm watching this stuff. 
like Parco loved to get crazy. Um, always. And Taj was kind of particular, and Andy was always kind of the godfather. It felt like, like he had the wolf pack, and Andy was kind of king. It felt like they used to rent this big house, and it just felt like a reality show. Like every day something crazy happened or someone got beat up or <laughs> it's like, like it was just, it was true magical surf history. Seriously, man. Oh my God. I can't believe that you're a fly on the wall through that period of just the <laughs> wolf pack reigning supreme on the North shore. Their boys winning world titles. Like the amount of, Oh yeah testosterone and uh, hyper masculinity and then you, you add all the you know chemicals into the mix the the illicit <laughs> chemicals but then also the chemicals you just get from packing whatever fucking wave you want at backdoor and pipeline and and basically the whole of the north shore is just revolving around this crew of fucking hopped up psychopaths holy shit yeah. you, you want to be on their good side yeah I was on the good side, but at, so I would like come out for like five months and I would go home and there was like no internet yet. So it was like, I would go home and I would, it's like, no one even knew. It was like, I would come home and I'm just a normal person again. <laughs> I was like, if these people knew what I just saw and just gone through, <laughs> Hawaii, every time I come home, I'd, I'd be so exhausted. I would need months to recuperate because it was just so much energy between the fights and the, the waves and the egos and the, the parties. I would just get home and just like be fried. <laughs> Crazy to think to now, you know, you're on this healing journey and one thing I've had to understand in my own healing journey is just, you know, just the role that energy plays, uh, what you put into your body, like how you, you know, move through the day. Like, uh, you know, for example, like, you know, chasing like uh, barreling waves for an entire day or two days or three days or whatever. And if you don't hydrate and uh, take care of yourself, like, fuck, mate. I'll be wretched, like I'll be overcome by the worst, like obtrusive thoughts and I'll just perish. Like looking back at that period, I mean, Anxiety. how abominable was the self-care yeah. and mental health literacy? Like it's, it's off the charts bad. <laughs> so, yeah, I had terrible anxiety and I no one talked to me about it I just thought something I thought I had a weird disease back then because I would struggle with anxiety because yeah I was surfing and partying and just taking everything to the max and I'm, I'm like I'd be like why do I feel this way something's wrong with me and wasn't until later it's like oh you have anxiety <laughs> it's like oh okay but i could tell my brain health was being affected around like 
eight, 19 years old, just pulling in that back door and off the wall over and over and over for months and months and months. I started, I started feeling weird and just, yeah, like just started struggling with anxiety pretty bad. And I would go home and rest for a couple months and kind of snap out of it. And then by the end of the year again, I felt messed up again. And I was kind of in that loop for a while. Yeah, that's really interesting because, I mean, the more I think about it, surfing is like, it's uh, yeah, a, a real detrimental kind of combination of forces are impacting on you. Like you're surfing, you know, you're out there for hours. It's the only like intense physical activity I know where you can't get a sip of water while you're doing it. Like, so you're super dehydrated <laughs> and at the same time, you're just face slapping over and over again, like, you know, for every yeah. good wave I make, there's fucking probably eight I didn't. And, uh, you know, you, you, you're getting like the worst headaches and shit. And that's just part of it. You don't even think twice about it. You know, you, you, you come in with these shit headaches. Like often the first thing you do after a yeah. session like that is come in and drink a beer <laughs> or six or eight. Yeah. And, and beer, yeah. you go and Which sleep like in a, a team house or a fucking bunk bed <laughs> or like some shit sleep scenario. And you just have this weird, wretched sleep and you wake up and do it all again and again and again. Like, um, fuck mate. Uh, it's like, it's yeah. It, it's so bad for your brain. Yeah. It makes sense now. Yeah. I think surfing is probably more, I think it's worse than football on impact. Um, especially if, if you're doing the airs and spinning real fast, I feel like that's what really messed me up is that doing the airs and landing in the flats, you know, face planning and just constantly whipping your head like that over and over and over, you know, like, Looking back, it's like, geez. Yeah, because they no talk a lot about sub-concussive <laughs> impacts being, well, yeah, uh, potentially worse than, than the, the big boppers that, that turn the lights off. Like, you know, just repeated uh, hits to the head like you would suffer in boxing or any kind mm. of combat sport, really. Um, and you can endure a lot of those. Like, there's boxers who've died from brain bleeds who were never knocked out. They just cop so much fucking punishment. Um, and yeah, and then it's afterwards that, yeah. that they perish, but it's, yeah, it's not obvious as well. You know, that, that's the other kind of bad thing about it because it's not obvious because you're not seeing lights or um, vomiting or, yeah. you know, don't have those con- classic symptoms of concussion. Yeah. You, you also don't treat uh, yourself with the, the yeah. care that you, you should. And hey, I don't know what the solution is. Yeah, you don't even know. Yeah, you don't know. Um, so you end up just going out and doing it again and again, and, and that's when the damage really sets in, man. It, it's it's the yeah. – you, know, you can kind of regenerate from concussions or many sub-concussive impacts if you take the right steps afterwards, and those right steps are hydration, um, any kind of anti-inflammatories that you can get your hands on, whether it be CBD oil, turmeric, 
um, fish oil. Uh, yeah, like some of those, um, there's a really good supplement by Dr. Mark Gordon, this guy uh, I got put onto through Joe Rogan, um, who works with a lot of military veterans. Uh, oh, it's called, uh, man, Dr. Mark Gordon, like Brain Saver or, or something like that. It's specifically for CTE and, and, and too many concussions. Um, so oh, really? The, yeah, I'd love, to, yeah. I'd love to check that out. Yeah, the, uh, man, it's, yeah, not coming to me. But uh, it's uh, unfortunate we can't actually get it here in Australia, but it's it's very accessible in America. It's amazing. Like the the lengths to which this doctor's gone to accumulate all these misto anti-inflammatory compounds in this gel packet. It's remarkable, but wow. yeah, surfing, man, it's, it's, it's pretty gnarly. I mean, the hard part is like, how do you tell people to take it easy? It's like, so, you know, like in any day of hollow waves, like fucking surfers just turn into the most ravenous tube junkies uh, and yeah. you know, I, I've always run with the logic <laughs> that I, I won't even go in until it stops barreling. Like, you know, I grew up in a fucking similar kind of shitty inner city sloppy beach scenario to you. So hollow waves are still the most exotic thing to me. And, uh, yeah, yeah I'll just fucking torch myself, uh, ritually if it's tubing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. And, I, and that's with everything that I already know about head injuries and my own situation. And I, I feel the pinch too, man. Yeah. It's, it's people don't, they just, they don't know until they go through it. And it's like, we can try to warn them. I just, TBIs just don't get enough publicity. Like when I had my big head injury, I knew nothing. I just, if I would have known anything, it would have saved me so much grief. But it's, I got the head injury and I was like, okay. And just slowly got worse and worse and worse and like took years for me to figure it out. Yeah, it's it's a crazy journey. Uh, I mean, you, you tend not to figure it out until you hit rock bottom and, and actually start to look yeah. at, you know, what's put you there. It, it, always t- it almost doesn't matter what it is in life. You, you don't tend to... Uh, change until you hit rock bottom and you could even say that for us as a species like this planet will need to hit rock bottom before we properly change course and and take responsibility for the abuse of humans and the environment but where it concerns head injuries i was the same man like uh you know in a bit of a different situation to you in in that a lot of mine was suffered early on in life uh you know between the ages of 12 and 22 and um so it was kind of my normal. I didn't really know any better, but yeah, definitely around the ages of 30, I think because uh, that kind of sat in returns period, 27 to 35, whatever you want to call it, even just 27 onwards, your mitochondria, um, you know, the cells that uh, control your energy levels and, you know, your growth through your youth, your mitochondria naturally declines with age. So all of those like niggling 
things like whether it's yeah, and you know the generalized anxiety what that you were suffering from probably head injuries and not taking care of yourself that shit doesn't go away like it used to like the your mitochondria has declined in function and you just start to feel fucking awful and that's uh was the situation for me your situation was a bit different because you suffered some of your worst head injuries during that period i understand from like 27 onwards and um yeah man like it's interesting your symptoms were so much more severe than mine because i think of the ages at which we suffered them and the same with owen like i i had owen's injury uh except that like it was worse like i had bleeding on the brain and had to drill a hole in my skull and 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 get rid of that blood because it was gonna damage the brain permanently or kill me actually um but again i didn't have the the heavy symptomology like you know losing speech um or motor skills like he did um the ability to walk and, and so on and you also suffered that so it, it, yeah i guess it's partly to do with the age at which these things are suffered and yeah you, you just have to hit rock bottom before you, you you seem to want to look into this shit properly what was uh rock bottom for you um, I became almost a hundred percent crippled. I couldn't get up anymore. I, I could barely talk. I go in and out of knowing myself and, and it was, it happened like six months after the injury. And it was crazy, man. Just no one knew what was wrong with me. And people thought I was faking. And finally found the right, the right doctor and who understood brain injuries and concussions and just started the healing journey. Took me about two years to actually start walking again. That's insane. Yeah. And, and what about the mental and emotional impact? Because like I was saying, like the symptoms can differ, but I feel like one of the real common denominators in head injuries is just what it does to your thinking patterns. Yeah, that's the hardest part. Um, if I didn't learn meditation before going into that, I for sure would have not made it. Um, I was able to handle the suicidal thoughts. I was able to, to have some space from the intensity of where your mind goes. It's no joke. I mean, that's what people don't understand when someone gets a TBI. It's like they're about to go on a journey through the darkest place ever and your brain just it's just crazy like you're about to go through hell like it's like you're about to take ayahuasca for five years and there's no getting out of it <laughs> seriously it's so wild yeah it, the moods the mood swings you can't even comprehend like is it's just crazy like 
when someone gets a TBI, they they need like there needs to be like TBI treatment centers like there are for cancer where it's like, okay, we're going to keep this person safe and we're going to give them everything they need. For me, I was completely disabled and I had to figure it out on my own. Like, fuck. It was gnarly. Like, I don't know how I survived. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like a pure miracle person. I like fought tooth and nail to get myself to the right doctors with a brain going in and out of consciousness and who I am. I just, I fought for my life for years just to find the right treatment. Like, and no one around me understood and no one knew what to do. And dude, I became like a homeless person. Like, I couldn't take showers because it hurt too bad. My body was so sensitive. So I just started stinking. And I just wore the same thing every day. And I carried around this giant piece of foam because I couldn't sit or lay down anywhere because it hurt too bad. So, like, if people saw me, I'm on this big piece of foam and then I stink and I look terrible and, like, people were just like, Oh, Sterling's like a homeless person. Now. Oh yeah, dude. Uh, I mean, I, I must admit, when I saw you uh, on Skid Row shitting into a plastic bag, I was like, you know what, this guy's done. <laughs> I shouldn't joke about it, but man, I, I, I relate. <laughs> <laughs> I relate to that entire story, um, and yeah. I, I love the idea of treatment centers for TBIs. Like, I believe that. Um, Suicide is the leading cause of death for anyone who's had a TBI, and that's one TBI, oh, yeah. man. That's that's one. So, like you know, if you look at the way our culture, it fucking pushes you into TBIs, man. Like you look at football, the way oh, yeah. football is celebrated, the way the UFC or boxing is celebrated, the way war, the military service is celebrated, the way high performance surfing is celebrated. <laughs> I mean, these are literally so. Yeah. The culture is encouraging you to go out there and fucking just ram your head through a brick wall, essentially. And then that's not to mention all the accidental and, ways in which it can happen: falling downstairs, slipping on ice, a car accident. Um, it's endless. Yeah. Like, if you get through life without having a serious concussion, you're you're probably in the minority. So it kind of needs to be taken yeah. a lot more seriously than it is. Yeah, it's like none of my friends understood because there's no awareness for it. Like if I would have told my friends, hey, I have cancer, they'd have been like, I'll be over right now and we'll do anything you need. And with my TBI, I I would like, I would message my friends like, hey, I have a brain injury. And they're like, okay, is there Advil or... <laughs> you know like I just I had zero zero support um cuz no one understands it mate and and that's one of the heaviest things of this illness or injury it's that you get fully shunned by people for you get put in the too hard basket you get written off as being arrogant 
or whatever it is, but really mm-hmm. you're just suffering. You're suffering immensely in ways that, uh, you know, more healthy, normal people can't fathom. And um, that that hurts. That that deepens the, the well of misery and suffering. And Yeah, dude. Man, that, that's like probably the most dangerous aspect of it. When, when people start like who you, you know, you need – community and, and, and social interaction to survive it's just a that's a that's a an absolute no-brainer that, that's part of the deal of being human so once people start doing that yeah. and you can kind of understand why they do that but like you said oh you know, if it was cancer they would act differently and and really the only people i've found i can count on who, who kind of give me that um support and and patience are the people who saw me knocked out you know like guys i used to play football with like when, when you see yeah. someone um ram their fist through your friend's head and you see them lifeless on the ground like it, it looks like they they're dead and they might be dead there's not a guarantee that you're coming back from that so those guys kind of like you know like they understand and that, that they give me that um kind of care and that that support, that support and that soft like you know there's like a, a sensitivity or a softness in the way that we deal with each other or the way they deal with me They're a lot more forgiving but generally people are unforgiving man when it comes to brain injuries oh dude yeah they you become like this people look at you if you have if your mental health when it comes to that, people look at you like you're trash. Like, like I did something to deserve this. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's really strange. Like, you, if you get a TBI, you're going to find out who your real friends are. That's for sure. <laughs> like, and, you know... A brain injured person is only as good as the support they have if they're really going to make it. (laughs) And I feel like that's where the awareness just has to get better. Like all those guys that came home from war, homeless, like they got messed up. Fuck. And it's not their fault. It's not their fault. And people drive by them like they did something wrong. It's like, no, dude. Like, that could be you. Like, that was the biggest awakening for me. Like, I met a lot of homeless people during that time because they could see my suffering. They're, it's like they were the only ones that could see it. And you realize these people aren't necessarily crazy. They're just, they're hurting just like I was. And I've just heard the craziest stories of what people went through, like war and, you know, this, this gypsy lady would come massage my feet and tell me like her crazy stories of like, she was in the Iran war in the nineties and, you know, it's just like people go through trauma and they can't, they can't get the right support. And then people look down on them and then it's just, you're just screwed. It's so crazy how quick you can get kicked out of society. Yeah, dude. And like, just be, I'm just, I'm lucky because my dad was Yancey Spencer. 
and like I was lucky in that aspect where I I like could get help like it was but if I didn't have that I was I probably would be a crazy person on the street now like and people just be like oh Sterling don't know what happened to him and it's just like dude I have so many surfer friends that disappear and I know they got brain injuries and trauma and and they did drugs to kind of try to cope and it's just a slippery slope man man that uh you know that want to self-medicate that we saw so often in the early noughties in that pro surfing elite realm uh you know particularly with ai but he was by no means the only one there was so many in that category and a lot of those guys are dropping off man a lot of those guys you know davo passed recently and he was you know he was not well when he passed man uh you know he was yeah. medicating self-medicating heavily and, and making awful decisions that were harming a lot of people around him and uh, yeah. it, it is like I guess when you look at it in the big scheme of things, the repeated sub-concussive impacts, that awful lifestyle where you're not taking any care of yourself, it builds up. And, you know, because there wasn't the mental health literacy and the healing modalities that were readily available at that time to these people, it wasn't in the culture whatsoever. So what option did they have? Well, Oxycontin, yeah, alcohol. alcohol, cocaine, whatever's going to numb the pain, really, and, and take you away from that. But obviously... Uh, you know, once the drugs wear off, the pain comes back with interest. I mean, I'd add benzos yeah. to that list, Xanax and Valium and that shit is, as, yeah. well, it's more addictive than um, opioids, harder to get off anyway. Uh, it was just a perfect storm of toxicity and fuck it claims some casualties, man. Oh, yeah. We're like surf veterans. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess... It, yeah. <laughs> I guess the other thing too, you know, just touching on what you were saying about military veterans in particular, I reckon one of the most toxic combos and it's underrated in how common it is, is PTSD or, or complex PTSD as it's known for those who've had multiple traumatic incidents in their life and head injuries. I mean, yeah. it's so common yet it, it, it's, um, you know, you, you look around the the world of, of healing journeys people are on and you can't find that 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 archetype to, to look at. It's something I look at a lot or look for a lot, you know, having come from a, a pretty uh, a, a broke and, you know, violent and abusive, like, kind of single-parent home and, like, just the, the, the trust issues yeah. that interact with the, the head injuries and, like, there's this fucking miasma of things going on and, and the triggering and, and how the, the flooding of cortisol can, can impact the the healing journey and it's this constant process and I look at those military veterans and you know a lot of them you know came from broken homes to begin with that's why they sought yeah. all that structure in the military and then they get yeah. sent to war and they get fucking blown up by IEDs or they they work in the testing of explosives that's uh where Dr. Mark Gordon began his kind of um uh, journey making that supplement was working with uh, a guy the star of the documentary uh, tales from the blast factory and man just that that vicious combo of those two things it's like whoa, it, it, man in my darker moments it 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 overwhelms me like 
um, just being mm. up against those two forces. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, that that's where the... You're doing great. Well, the, <laughs> yeah, I, I rip in hard, like, um, you know, the fucking, <laughs> like, all that shit, like the, the breath work and the meditation and the yoga and shit, it takes up a lot of time every day. And that's just what I have to yeah. do to survive life. I've un- I understand that now, and a lot of other people don't. You know, they they, they think kind of uh, yeah, I'm with you, dude. Yeah, it's a privilege, and it's a, like I'm on the same program, a luxury to have. Yeah, and the meditation you mentioned, man. Again, I would just reiterate that that did the exact same for me. It was so important, yeah. and whether it's head injuries or whatever is creating the um, those self-harm thoughts or harming other thoughts like the meditation it does give you that gap as you said and allows you to see thoughts for what they are and, and let them pass yeah. and um, you know one of the real problems I think with the head injuries I had a lot of them are at the front of the head you know they're just like direct blunt force trauma um, on the on the jaw and the, 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 the kind of front of the face and I think it's the prefrontal lobe that sustain a lot of the damage so compulsive thoughts intrusive thoughts of a fucked up nature mm. has been a real hard one you know, I, i've struggled with it still today yeah, and sorry um it's like you know the worst thing about it is i have such strong values and these thoughts come along that the, the, the most disturbing thoughts that you can possibly have um about yeah. reality about every possible fucked up thing you can think of doing to other people and <laughs> they like you know, or, or myself, they, yeah. um, you know, the worst thing is because I don't gel with my values. I have like a reaction of disgust or self-loathing to those thoughts, yeah. which is exactly the wrong thing to do. There's that saying, what you resist persists. Uh, anything that you have an emotional reaction to uh, keeps it keeps it hanging around. It's, it's this weird paradox where the thing that you don't want to have pop up in your mind yeah. the most is precisely the thing that keeps coming back the most often until you learn to detach the emotional charge from it, it will recur. And uh, that's a real challenge. But I have learned also that... I feel you, dude. Yeah, man. And just to to finish that rant, like I have learned also that... I've, I've learned, I'm continuing to learn the patterns. The patterns are key, man. So like those thoughts come up yeah. when I'm tired or... It can be tired. Right. They're heavily. They're just attached to anxiety, and anxiety generally arrives if you're yeah. too hungry, too tired, uh, too thirsty, or, yeah. or too stressed. You overdo it. Yeah, you can't overdo it. That's right, man. Yeah, I feel you, dude. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I'm with you, man. I, I go through the same stuff, and. <sighs> tricks i've learned i just my mind is i just laugh at it now (laughs) that's great my humor has really been my i don't i'm curious if i was like funny before the brain injuries or did i become funny to cope with the brain injuries because my humor is always kind of i just kind of laugh all the time and i don't take my mind seriously and my mind is like this radio to me now. And yeah, when I get tired, I notice the radio starts getting a little dark. And it's like, all right, I'm going to go relax because I've overdone it. And I'll just kind of just not, not let it get to me, you know. Mm. It's like, uh, 
just laugh. That's great, man. And that that's the key. Yeah, like as the Buddhists say, I think they call it the, the drunken monkey mind. Like that's what it is. It's this fucking yeah. slurring, stumbling little chimp that's just, you know, every now and then starts hurling excrement at the walls of your head. Yeah. But I've also learned that you can you can generate energy, man. That's that's been the big lesson is that whenever you do start to hit those moments, there's all these methods. You can just go fucking lie on your bed, Google Wim Hof breathing, and bang, like you've just generated all this adenosine triphosphate and all this energy. And you feel the craziness release out of your like brain and stomach. Yeah. And like, you know, Qigong is another version of that. Yoga, meditation, uh, yoga yeah. nidra. There's all these things. Essentially what they're doing is generating more energy. And more energy is the key to feeling good. When you're low on energy, you feel shit. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I go on like bike rides. If I start feeling too much, it's like just focus on something else and it'll pass. Um, yeah, it's just the mind is always going to send a storm, you know? So it's just, I look at my mind just like nature. It's like, oh, it's about the rain. Oh, it's, oh, it's sunny. I'm going to enjoy it while it's sunny. Oh, it's kind of colder today. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I, it's amazing that people can just live. <laughs> they don't have to think. They don't have to deal with any of this. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people all have to deal with this. They are. They don't know it. Yeah, and and they they medicate it. It's not as intense. Yeah, it's not as intense. I would say it's not as intense, and they'll have moments when it is as intense, and. I think that's where some of the um, resentment comes from, that they believe you're not dealing with the moments they confront as well. But I think the frequency and intensity of those moments are vastly increased following head injuries. Um, Yeah. But, yeah. It's like, let's take it up to level 10. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And our culture just encourages it, man. Like, you know, frick, you you look at these kind of older cultures, man, and they don't have sports like rugby league and NFL and high-performance surfing and cage fighting and fucking like, in like, uh, you know, like India and, uh, and I don't know, Thailand. I mean, they got the kickboxing and stuff there. But yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah, I feel like our culture has uh, a lot to blame for the, for the situation so many people are finding themselves in. But man, like, what have been your philosophical takeaways from this journey? Like, how how's your perspective shifted during this healing journey? Huge. <laughs> I feel I feel like what I can take away positive with this is like I had to. Uh, I had to dig deep uh, spiritually and to make sense of life, to survive. And I don't think I would have ever done it, ever. And I'm grateful for where I'm at and what I feel. And I feel super blessed, even though I'm dealing with so much. Um, I, I feel just as blessed as I am cursed. 
And it just seems like that's the game of life. It's just this yin and yang. And it's just bringing us deeper into love and, you know, what what people call God or the universe or whatever you want to describe it as, you know, it just, just feels like this. Yeah. It's just, it's been a crazy journey. <laughs> yeah. I guess everyone's got their cross to bear in life. Don't they? They, 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 I feel like everyone kind of goes on that hero's journey in, in some way. Yeah. It's just, Oh, yeah. something's going to plunge her into the deep, dark depths of hell. And, you know, it can be grief, um, deaths, illness. Yeah. Um, grief is a tough one. Frick. My dad passed away. That was really, that was really hard. It took me, it took me a while. That's what's gnarly is like, you can go through grief, someone dying and, it's like a brain injury, but our society is just like, just keep going, get busy, just stay busy. <laughs> and that's like the worst thing to do with grief. It's fucked up. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's just fucked up how little space capitalism and, and consumerism gives yeah. you for, for healing or just taking care of yourself. Not even healing, just fucking, you know, yeah. going through life. Like it's like, no, you got to get back to work, earn money to service some fucking massive mortgage debt that you got or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, my dad died when I was making my movie Surf Madness. And um I didn't know how to move on. And Bill Bong was like Everyone was nice, but they're like, "All right, you got to start, get moving. And it was just like, wow. Life just moves on with or without you. <laughs> this is a cruel world we live in. <laughs> yeah, man. It's a world that does not respect the spirit world. It respects only money. Right. And, um... You know, yeah. look like look at the way our world, our Anglosphere behaves. It behaves as uh, a world that does not respect the spirit world. We're just in a constant fucking state of war. Everyone is so sick. The yeah. richest people on earth are the sickest. Like the richest countries on earth are the sickest. You know, America has more billionaires yeah. than Russia and China combined, but also has like the by far the, the highest rates of uh, pharmaceutical consumption. Um, there's so much self-medicating going on just to survive this so-called like golden <laughs> age that we've created. Yeah, it's, uh, Crazy. Man, it's twisted. And you can just walk out into the woods. All you have to do is like go walk in the woods and you're like, oh, it's all good. <laughs> totally. The Eckhart Tolle method. I mean, that's how... Um, uh, what's his book not be here now uh, The Power of Now that's how it was Power of Now yeah. that's how it was written he just was overcome with depression and he went out into the woods and after a certain amount of time there was just nothing else to think about so he became attached and anchored in the present yeah yeah I, I um I made a movie called Join the Dance. 
And that was kind of my documentation of my like spiritual journey in nature. Cause I, <clears throat> I quit, I pretty much just quit pro surfing cause I couldn't handle the depression anymore. And I just like started surfing and I just stayed in nature every day, all day. And all my problems went away. <laughs> and it made me realize, like, oh, this is all, like, fake problems. And, you know, nature is, like, the true teacher. And I became so happy. <laughs> and I just kind of documented things I would think or quotes and just put it on film kind of as a journal pretty much. And yeah, it was, it's, it's amazing how happy you can be with nothing. Like I got to do the sickest stuff in surfing, but like it probably wasn't better than just like being at peace in nature. <laughs> and we don't want to admit that to ourselves, that the chasing of perfect waves and these peak experiences uh, on a physiological level, it all just boils down to adrenaline. And uh, adrenaline is very yeah. closely related to cortisol, the stress hormone. And really, it's kind of the opposite direction that you want to be traveling. You know, you really want to be traveling more towards serotonin. And uh, I guess, yeah. uh, I mean, like just that, that the peak experience of like surfing really good quality waves, hollow waves, um, yeah, I don't know. Ultimately, like it's so fun, and I'll never stop. But I don't think it's that yeah. good for you, <laughs> dude. I'm the happiest just riding a twin fin and just freaking cruising and finding that rail. That's kind of my. I feel like I've switched my surfing to like jazz music. Like, I stopped playing the air guitar. And now I just, I'm going to play jazz like the rest of my life. <laughs> like I played the air guitar hard. I gave it my best. And now I'm just like going to cruise and play the bass <laughs> and just be happy and be one with life. That's the truth of it, man. I reckon that's the, the inconvenient truth of surfing right there. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just so at peace on a twin fin. It's crazy. Like I f can find something new to enjoy every single session, because um, it just gives you so much speed. And I just like being a part of the wave, not really being the focal point of the wave. Like I love just like my mind is just always blown when I'm riding a wave. Like I can't believe I'm like a part of this, and just like feel, I just love feeling the wave and like, yeah, it's just a totally different experience now surfing for me. Like when I was younger, I was trying to prove my surfing destiny, you know, like I was trying to live up to my dad's expectations or, you know, like I wanted to be a, a pro surfer from like the hardest place ever to come from so i had to go spin my little brains out <laughs> when i watch airs now i'm just like 
I feel like if you land an air reverse, like you're good. Like, do you need to do it more? <laughs> so much of surfing like, is really just trying to impress others and uh, kind of maintain yeah, your place like, in this social hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it doesn't even look organic. Like, like doing an air, pumping the whole wave and doing an air, it's just like, it's almost silly looking back. <laughs> it's, it's all you. It's all ego. It's all. But I think it's good when you're young. Like, it's good to see where you can take things. Like, it's good to push yourself. And I don't regret any of it. Like, I'm proud. And, like, I was, I'm stoked that I was able to, like, take my physical ability to the max. Um, and then now it's like, now I'm just on a different trip now. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like, like me. So you go. Okay. I like my, my journey now is like, I love making people laugh cause it makes me feel good and them feel good. And I just surf, <laughs> enjoy it. Like, I'm just kind of on like healing paths and for others too, you know, like your healing can't be full without others involved, you know, like if you're not trying to help others, like you're never going to heal. It feels like it's like we're this organism and it's like, we have to like do it together no matter what it feels like. That's so true. That is the absolute. I feel like my biggest yoga, my biggest thing I give back to people is just like to make them laugh. And it's like, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's it. Don't take it so serious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. Totally. And then, uh, you know, before I let you go, like, you know, tell us a bit about this film. So, like, what can we expect from it? I guess. like we've canvassed a, a lot of what will end up being in the film. Yeah, this film is just kind of, it's like a mini documentary of my kind of career, what led me up to my brain injury. And then um, a good chunk of the film is just what I went through and how I survived. And um, I talked to a few people who, you know, I talked to Albie Lair, who went through pretty bad brain injuries, and Shane Doran, and um, Dane Reynolds is in it. Um, I just everyone's kind of sharing their experience, you know, with dealing with brain injuries, and it a lot of it's just like bringing awareness, you know, to it, and wrapped up in just kind of my life story. Sick. One of the things I forgot to mention too, talking about support along the way, and one of the craziest things I heard was that actually one of the people who really stepped up during that period was Rob Machado. Tell us uh, how that came about. Yeah, he uh, he's just such a good human. I... Uh, I went to Hawaii and did treatment and then 
he had a treatment center right next to his house, pretty much like down the street and, um, called, uh, wave neuro, which is like a, this like TMS thing you put on your head. <clears throat> and yeah, he's, he just like took me down there and they're just like, we could do you treatment. And he let me stay at his house. And that was like, that was ins- so insane. Cause I was like laying by myself by a tree for like two years <laughs> and I hadn't been around people at all. And then Rob lives with, Rob has like a bunch of people that lives at his house. And it was like, all of a sudden I'm with this huge family and it's like chaos. And like, I'm doing brain treatment and like, he's taking me surfing and then we're going for lunch. And it was just like, I was like holding on for dear life. Just like getting brought back into reality. And it was just like, it was like the most insane blessing. Like, I don't think I would have ever gotten some like my mobility that I have now back. Like, cause I was like learning how to, I was learning how to be around people again, like understanding like their mouths and words. And it was a trip dude. like to just be thrown into society again. Like it was really overwhelming. Um, but I needed, I needed like to get pushed, I needed a big push to do it again, you know, like, and like surfing every day, I read like all of Rob's boards. It was just like, yeah, I just really couldn't have done this without him. Like, and yeah, Rob Machado is like the coolest person ever, you know? So it's like, it's pretty surreal. I, I've already, I'd lived at his house before and spent a lot time with him and you know that was just like I was just like so happy to be around people and like people hugging me and like I was just like wow like this is insane like (laughs) like it's it's so funny we need each other so bad but if but we'll also drive each other crazy too It's like there's this funny balance with humans. Like we need each other so bad, but we also need to stay away from each other at times too. <laughs> totally, bro. That I think that's the strength of community versus uh, friendships. Like friendships are super direct and intimate, whereas community is like you're in a setting with all these people and it takes the pressure off the friendship having community. But our communities don't really exist anymore in the Western world. We don't really – like unless you go on a church yeah. or you're part of some sporting club, like – there's not, uh, there isn't really community anymore. We don't have structured community and it, it, it does put a lot of strain on friendships. Yeah, I, I've learned a great deal. Like, I'm like, man, I see why Christians go to church. Like, the community aspect, what you're saying, it's like, it's crucial. Especially if you go through tragedy, when you need, like, when you need help just to eat, you know, like someone feed you. It's like a lot of people don't think about this stuff, you know, like you think you're going to your whole life be, be able to take care of yourself. And when that goes away, you're like, fuck, I would have treated people a lot different. 
Totally. Yeah, church is, is I look at it as an amazing thing, like less so for the the uh, connection to God um, or the supposed connection to God. Like I don't even... I actually uh, think it's more about yeah. the community aspect of it. Well, that's Fuck, where you man. feel power. You feel yeah. so good. He's 100%. Yeah, it really is. If, if one day a week you can go and see like... 20, 50, oh, 100 people, you know, from it's, around the traps. It's medicine. Like, it, it's medicine to hugging, magic. It really is Hugging magic. people and just people asking you how you're doing and they, like, care, actually. Like, yeah, dude. That's, like, why I feel like that's why religion's still around. <laughs> we, all have, we all have Google Totally, now. man. <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah just all those little interactions and getting to know other people's stories and uh yeah man it, it, it's so powerful and it has no value placed on it yeah. whatsoever in this kind of capitalist consumerist reality that yeah. dominates our way of life like yeah the breakdown of community um particularly i mean you're living through it right now the gentrification the coastal gentrification the buying up of real estate by the rich and the jacking of rents which then moves people on who've been there for you know your lower income residents who've been there for 10 20 30 40 years whatever it is this is happening uh, across the globe it's a fucking travesty man it's a disgrace um it's destroying the fabric of our communities our coastal communities uh that's gnarly yeah that's why we got to start our only fans dude (laughs) yeah that's it man we got to come up with some more money to save our communities and if that means jacking off into a webcam we'll fucking i'm your man man it's been such a pleasure to connect with you again fuck i haven't spoken to you in ages i know and uh i really appreciate you man like you're really good to me in my early my career i appreciate it dude for always being cool uh we were just a couple of oddballs trying to make our way in a confounding reality (laughs) and i uh i saw i saw you across the pond and i thought this guy is just as fucking weird as me but it uh (laughs) turns out we had more in common than that i know um, how long have you guys been podcasting now? It's a good question. This is our 10th year. Ten yeah, years? man. And yeah. I, I often say to my mates, like when I started this podcast, like I didn't know of another podcast in Australia at the time. And I didn't, I didn't find out about Joe Rogan for another like five years after I had this podcast. And the only podcast I knew actually was Mark Marin. Do you remember Mark Marin? No. Oh, he was sick. He was like this Jewish uh, Saturday Night Live comedian. And yeah, that was the only one. It was, it's a really good podcast. He's like the original Joe Rogan, actually. Uh, he had like Barack Obama went on his podcast, went into his garage in wherever wow. the fuck he lives, some suburb. And yeah, so I, I feel 10 like years, bro. the first time I heard of a podcast was from you. Like, you're like, yeah, we're doing a podcast. I'm just like, what is that? <laughs> I didn't understand podcasts till like this year. I'm like, oh, you just talk. <laughs> That's it, man. And we can share information without gatekeepers. You know, this yeah. is this is the most profound thing. Don't underestimate podcasts. Like, they're actually the most profound thing to happen 
to information technology and the world and global consciousness since probably the printing press was invented in uh, I think like the 1400s and for the same reasons uh, you know the printing press allowed uh, scientific scholars and stuff to have access to a medium that dispensed information to the masses prior to that it was just religious scholars uh, who were able yeah, to kind of tell people how the world worked there really is like a magic to it like um like we started a podcast pinch my salt and like there's something like primal about just talking to each other in like a setting like i feel like there's just something primal to it where it's like oh yeah like it's pretty cool for sure. When it all boils, I mean, look, indigenous cultures have understood this for 60,000 years. Like the Aboriginal culture here all revolves around uh, oral histories. Like they don't have anything written down. It's all, It was all communicated right. through words and story. And, and that's what we're doing here. And, and human beings, like storytelling is our main vehicle of making sense of the world. And you just don't get that watching TV and shit. Right. Everything's like edited and cut down and it's just it's not a a good way to explain reality and people realize that now and mainstream television and news networks and the the kind of old media model is so fucking dead it's comical i mean i don't know how they're even managing to exist yeah it's bad for sure well bro I'll, i'll let you go because you got a family oh man one last thing dude i messaged you fucking like midnight last night almost and you were and you you're up and i was like oh shit i like i didn't want you to i was hoping you weren't because that means that bro you've transgressed one of the cardinal rules of uh brain regeneration and mental health and that's sleep hygiene you, you were looking at a phone screen uh prior to bed man that, that can fry <laughs> your brain they can detect a blast radius uh two days afterwards right. from looking at a, a blue light screen within an hour of going to bed i got that off the huberman lab via dr matthew walker the sleep scientist but for anyone listening right. out there yeah i wear i wear the i wear the sun the glasses mm. and the i got like this filter on the phone just like mm, this mm. like screen you put over your phone but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hear you. Like I learned that one the hard way for a while. It's like if you stare at your phone right before bed, it's like you can't get into REM. Exactly, man. And that's where the brain does all of its cleaning all up the of the freaking the, magic. The detritus. That's it, dude. It's got to get all those sleep cycles in. It's crucial. Yeah. People, like, that doesn't come on the fucking, the box of your iPhone or your laptop that this will fry your brain if you look at dude, it within an hour ago in bed. The phone, the phone is, like, the most addictive thing ever. It's crazy. It's mind crack. Yeah. <laughs> it's gnarly. It's fucked up. Yeah, we just talked about it, me and Vaughn. Of like, I'm I'm going back to the flip phone, and I'm going to keep my smartphone for podcasts and shit in the car next to me. But I'm out. I'm tapping out, man. <laughs> yeah, dude, I've never been more addicted to something. Seriously, man. Yeah, I thought I was addicted to crack and pegging, but <laughs> frick, man. This, 
<laughs> this phone shit's <laughs> got me. Yeah, that's good. Well, thanks for everything, dude. Love you, bro. Love you too, man. So good to hear your voice and yeah. hear you on the mend. And uh, yeah, brother, all the thanks love and the power love. in the world to you. You too, my bro.